All right, who's excited that the Holy Spirit has finally showed up after 28 weeks? Who's excited about that? It took forever to, for Jesus to show up, and now the Holy Spirit has finally showed up. I'm excited, because I really need the Holy Spirit today. Because Cheryl told me I have to stay in one spot, otherwise this microphone's not going to work. So I really need some anointing from the Holy Spirit today. Please pray for me. Lay hands on me right now. But seriously, I'm excited for the Holy Spirit to be here. Because without the Holy Spirit, I cannot give you the message I'm going to give you today. Why don't you guys pray with me so the Holy Spirit can be involved in what I'm doing today. Father, what a privilege it is to have the living and active God inside of us. Do we really realize how privileged we are to have the living, breathing, moving God inside of us, working in us each and every day? Help us not to take that for granted. And God, I cannot preach a sermon today without your Holy Spirit moving inside of me. I pray that at least one part of my message would convict somebody. We love you and, and we praise you. We give you the glory and the honor. Help me to preach your word accurately. Help me to preach your word humbly. In your mighty and precious name, amen. So there's this man. He's at a nursing home in Roslyn. His name is Joe. Me and Joe Scott and, and Buddy Allman, we visit this man from time to time. This man has no legs. He always has this glass half full kind of mentality all the time. He's always got a big smile on his face. The fact that he doesn't have any legs doesn't really faze him too much. Man, this guy's a Mac Daddy, man. He thinks every nurse in that nursing home is his girlfriend. Every time we're in there, he sees a nurse pass by. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. We're like, easy, Joe. Easy, Joe. Brace yourself, buddy. We always bring him chocolates all the time. And he always says that he goes through those chocolates the day that he gets the chocolates. This guy's a lot of laughs. But here's the sad part about Joe. He has no close friends, and he has no family to be an advocate for him. Like a lot of people in nursing homes, he doesn't have an advocate. He doesn't have somebody to fight for him at his defense. He doesn't have somebody to be an extra set of eyes and ears to make sure he's not getting taken advantage of at the nursing home. We look at John, chapter 16, verse 14. Or sorry, John, uh, chapter 14, verse 16, my bad. This is one of the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples before he's handed over to be arrested. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. Little Greek lesson. The word another in there means another like the first. He says, he will give you another advocate like the first. 
You will have the living and moving and breathing God inside of you. You'll have your own natural GPS and security system and water purifier built in in the convenience of your own body, guiding you. Because Jesus knew that when he was going to leave this earth, he needed to leave an advocate. Somebody to fight for us. Somebody to help us live a holy life. Somebody to convict us. Somebody to teach us. We go on to uh, John chapter 16 and verse 7. Jesus says, But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. He even says that it's for your good that I'm going away. And if you're looking at the Bible, you're like, yeah, that's right, the Holy Spirit is coming. But if you look at verse 6, Jesus says, because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. See, the disciples are filled with grief that this advocate is coming. You know, they've been filled with bad news. Jesus is going to die. Peter's going to deny him three times. Judas is going to betray him. And now they hear that Jesus is leaving and there's going to be this advocate that's going to be better than the physical, tangible Jesus in the flesh. It's almost like you're watching a movie that you've seen a bunch of times and you're yelling at the movie. Did any of you guys ever yell at a movie? You're like, get out of the shed! Get out of the shed! Don't go in the door! Don't go in the door! No! You're a moron! And sometimes we look at a passage like this and we're like, come on guys, this is the Holy Spirit! Jesus is telling you this, the man that spoke in red! Some of you guys got that. Why would you not be excited about the advocate, the counselor? That's going to live inside of you. But I want to pose a question to you guys. If you had a chance to have the tangible Jesus right here, would you take the tangible Jesus over the Holy Spirit? Has that been a question you really ever asked yourself? Because the disciples were focused on the tangible, just like we're focused on the tangible. In week 20 of the story, we're talking about new beginnings. And these new beginnings come from the power of the Holy Spirit to work in the believers of the first church. And there was new beginnings because the Holy Spirit inspired the believers to have three B's. That's not too shabby of a report card, right? Three B's. I like to call them the killer bees sometimes. That gives you graphic imagery. There's some buzzing creature. Some people think of the killer bees and they think of Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell, which that's what I usually think of when I think of the killer bees. That's for all you baseball fans out there. But there's three bees that had to do with new beginnings from the Holy Spirit with the believers of the first church. The Holy Spirit challenged the believers to have new beginnings through being a witness, through being in community, and through being transformed. Let's look at the first one, being a witness. 
Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts was written by a man named Luke. He was a physician. He was a companion of Paul's. At this point in the book, Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples frequently within the 40 days when he was on earth after uh, he rose again. And there was one day when he was eating with his disciples, and he tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I love saying that word power. But you will receive power. It's like, it really hits you with power when you read that word power. Power, you know. It's like Emerald Lagasse. Bam, you know. Turn it up another notch, you know. But you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. Jesus is challenging his believers to be witnesses. One time I had to be a witness. It was a real touching moment in my life. Uh, my dad came down to watch me play baseball in central Illinois. And uh, he was staying in a hotel. And uh, there was no traction on the bottom of the shower floor. And he slipped and busted a bunch of bones around one of his eyes. It was one of the nastiest scenes I've ever seen. So my dad tried to file a lawsuit, and I was a witness. And I had to testify on my dad's behalf with my testimony of what I had seen and what I had heard and what I had experienced. A good witness is going to testify with their testimony in a courtroom based on what they've seen and what they've heard and what they've experienced. We look at Acts chapter 2. This is 10 days after that conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. This is the day of Pentecost. 50 days after the Sabbath of the Passover week. And there was God-fearing Jews from all different nations gathered in Jerusalem. And all the believers were together in one place. And what felt like a violent wind from heaven was blowing. And what looked like tongues of fire were resting upon each of the believers. And the Holy Spirit was enabling the believers to speak in different tongues, which meant different languages. And all the God-fearing Jews from all the different nations could hear their own language with these tongues. And a lot of these God-fearing Jews were amazed. And some of them are like, man, these guys are a little tipsy. They're a little drunk. But Peter had to testify. Peter had to be a witness on the Holy Spirit's behalf. See, Peter goes on to say, these people are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I sort of always laugh at that part of Scripture. I'm like, why don't you just say, oh, we're not big parties? Why do you have to say nine in the morning? Does that imply that they were going to go drink at nine at night? I mean, it's just sort of funny. It's sort of humorous. I know they're not going to do that, but it's just sort of funny. They had to say, no, it's, it's, 
Only nine in the morning. So he gives prophecy from Joel, and he gives some prophecies from David. And he talks about the gospel message of, of Jesus dying on the cross and, and rising again, and how this Jesus conquered death once and for all, for all that believe in him and follow him. We jump to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And in light of everything that Peter had said, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter testified, he was a witness, he gave his testimony of what he had seen and what he had heard and what he had experienced, and the people were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We're in the courtroom every day when we're a Christian. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, people are going to see a difference. And they're going to ask questions. And are you prepared to have an answer? For the hope that you have. Are you prepared to be a witness? Are you prepared to testify with your testimony of what you've seen and what you've heard and what you've experienced? Romans 1.16 says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You see... The God-fearing Jews were cut to the heart because there's power in the gospel. Because it's the salvation of everyone who believes. Are you prepared to give a testimony with the gospel message? Jesus commands his disciples in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, to go preach the good news. When you have good news, you want to tell people. You don't want to keep it to yourself. When you've heard the good news, and you know that it has touched your heart, and it has uh, really gave you some open heart surgery, you want to tell people about it. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's how powerful the Word of God is. And the Gospel is in the Word of God. It convicts you. It hits you on such a deep level inside your heart. It gives you open heart surgery to see where your heart really is. And it gives you that godly sorrow just like it gave those God-fearing Jews godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's why Peter told the God-fearing Jews 
Repent and be baptized. Because the gospel message should pierce you in the heart. It should make you feel godly sorrow where you want to go one direction towards God and leave your past behind and have a change of heart and a change of mind. I know Acts 2.38 is such a debatable passage all the time. But here's the deal. If you have a repentant heart, why would you not want to be baptized? If you've tasted the goodness of God, and you have a repentant heart, and you want to follow God, you're going to follow His Word. And baptism's a command. It's a command. I would really question your heart if you had no desire to get baptized. That's why Peter tells the God-fearing Jews to repent and be baptized. Because if you have a repentant heart, you're going to want to get baptized. Because you're going to want to follow God's Word, and you're going to want to trust God's Word. And God's Word commands that we need to be baptized. It's the only time where you can identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Where you're dead to sin and alive in Christ, coming out of the water. It's not an argument of whether or not you can get out of baptism. It's a question of why would you not want to be baptized? You don't have to be a graduate student to spread the gospel. We're all called to preach the good news. We're all called to preach the good news. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a testimony with the gospel message. Not everybody was puking off balconies in college and all of a sudden, you know, they accepted Christ. Not everybody has that story, and it's okay. I didn't have that story. I grew up in a normal family. I went to Christian school a good chunk of my life. But the gospel had enough power to change me and to pierce my heart that gave me godly sorrow that led to repentance. It's not about you, it's about the gospel and how the gospel changed you in your circumstances, in your life. Be prepared to give an answer through the gospel with your testimony. Because the gospel with your testimony will pierce hearts. And people are going to have a repentant heart. They're going to say, God, I need you. I want to follow you. I want to go one direction. I don't want to look back. I want to get baptized. I want to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. New beginnings through the Holy Spirit also challenge the believers to be a community. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a word that occurs three times that really stands out to me. It's a word together. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together 
with glad and sincere hearts. This idea of being together really influenced the early believers. And when you're together and you have everything in common, and you're eating together, and you have this camaraderie together, you have community. Community was at the core of the early church. You see, community creates accountability. Community creates relationships. Community allows the church to be the body that 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, where each body part is working together to move, to grow the kingdom of God with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of God. And we can kill that, that 2080 concept that's always talked about in churches where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. If you recognize community, you recognize your part in the body. Because if you don't do your part in the body, you can't have community because people aren't communicating together. People aren't working together. People aren't having camaraderie. People aren't building relationships. There's no accountability if you're not together in community. In a community, you have unity. And people see unity. Community is infectious. Some of you guys remember last year we went over to Westgate School to do some service projects outside. And we're excited about our uh, next beautification day that's coming this May. That's going to be awesome. But the community around Westgate saw our community. The administration saw our community. And they want a little piece of that. And the administration allows us to do ministry there all the time because we have community. And our community is infectious. A lot of people like to move to small towns because there's a lot of community in small towns. I lived in two small towns before I moved here. But there's more pigs than people. I'm not lying. I remember the post office bulletin board would be murdered with flyers about a benefit for somebody that was sick or somebody that was in a car wreck. Because there was community in these small towns. The community would come together and support these people and raise funds for these people. And people are attracted to that community. I was at CIY, the Christ and Youth Conference, a couple years ago. And there was a speaker that talked about uh, the tornadoes hitting Joplin. That's where the CIY headquarters are in Missouri. He said, I was working with my church out there, cleaning up some of the debris. And there's one guy that comes up, and he says, if it wasn't for those flipping Christians, we wouldn't be getting anything done around here. He didn't use flipping, there was something else, but that's the censored version. But even a guy like that, with that nasty mouth, saw community from Christians. The world sees community through the body of Christ. When the body of Christ is in community... We even came together with McLean Bible. It's rare for churches to come together with other churches in community. Especially with our Thanksgiving dinner. 
We partnered with McLean Bible. We had more resources. We had more manpower. And people saw the power of God through community with two churches coming together, despite their differences. And that community was infectious, too. But there's only a certain kind of community that you want to follow. You have to know what a community is devoted to in order to follow them. Let's look at Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The community through the body of Christ is devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is challenging his disciples. And he asks them, who do you say that I am? Some people say that I'm John the Baptist. Other people say that I'm Elijah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Well, actually, he was Simon Peter at that point. And then Jesus says, I'm not going to call you Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The church was built upon the foundation that Jesus is the Christ. And when your community is built upon the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, you're devoted to fellowship, and you're devoted to the breaking of bread, and you're devoted to prayer. On Christ the solid rock I stand. No other ground is sinking sand. Everybody turn your hymnals to page 96. <laughs> also reminds me of the man that built his house upon the rock and the man that built his house upon the sand. You know, the man that built his house upon the rock had the firm foundation. The man that built his house upon the sand didn't have that firm foundation. Your community has to have a firm foundation. And it's upon the foundation that Jesus is the Christ. And when your church community is built upon the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You can have a church of 10,000 people, you can have an awesome speaker, you can have an awesome band, but it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's moving there. It doesn't mean that your church is built upon the rock that Jesus is the Christ. God can take a church of 75 people and make many disciples and allow His Holy Spirit to move if that church is built upon the rock of Jesus. The third way that we see new beginnings through the Holy Spirit is because the believers were challenged to be transformed. They were challenged to be transformed. There was a band I used to listen to in middle school. They were called Corn. They rocked out. They were the biggest partiers on the planet. I didn't try to grow dreadlocks or anything. That would look really awkward on me anyways. But I find out a few years later that two of their members became Christians. And I almost went into cardiac arrest. I'm like, two of the guys from Corn became Christians? I remember when these guys were crazy partiers. And now they're worshiping Jesus. 
It's almost like those people from high school that you remember that were horrible partiers, and then you talk to them like 10 years later, and they're loving Jesus, and they're worshiping Jesus. I remember the first time my mom was starting to tell people I was a pastor. Half my teachers and half the kids I went to high school with went into cardiac arrest. Because I couldn't even give a one-minute speech about, like, uh, earwax, you know, in high school. I, I don't remember giving a speech about earwax, but it just sounded like the right thing to say. But the Holy Spirit transforms. We see a man named Paul in Acts. He was responsible for killing Christians. He was responsible for the death of Stephen, if you remember reading about Stephen. He sent a letter to the high priest in Damascus, letting everyone know if that there's anyone that belongs to the way, which was the church, in Damascus, they would be arrested, and they would be taken back with Paul, but his name was Saul at that time. And they would be in prison. And so we see Paul getting closer, or Saul getting closer to Damascus. And he sees a light shine on him. And he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's told to go to the house of a man named Judas on Straight Street in Jerusalem, I mean in Damascus. And he's blind for three days. He doesn't eat or drink anything for three days. And God speaks to a man named Ananias in a vision. God tells Ananias, there's a man at the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. He's blind. He hasn't eaten anything. And he hasn't had anything to drink in three days. You're going to put your hand on him and he's going to have his sight restored. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias is like, are you serious? This is Saul. This is a man responsible for a lot of Christians being killed. You're going to use this guy? Are you serious? Are you out of your mind? I remember that guy in high school. But God's like, this is my chosen instrument to bring my message to the Jews and the Gentiles. So he finds Ananias. Ananias lays his hand on him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He restores his sight. And uh, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. This is, what, this is what happens as a result of Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit. And once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And has he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. There was power in, in Paul, who was Saul. That's hard to get used to. 
But God saw Saul where he was. He knew what he was originally created to be, and he saw Saul's potential. We see that the Holy Spirit can transform anybody. And once you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in the transforming business, even when you have the Holy Spirit. You're getting sanctified every day, which means you're growing closer and closer to Jesus every day because the Holy Spirit is transforming you into something new each and every day. Because in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone. Don't doubt that anybody can't be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Don't doubt that you can be transformed by the Holy Spirit. No matter what your past is, no matter what people think your potential is, the Holy Spirit transforms you when you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. If God can take Saul, who was killing Christians, and see the potential in him, and see what he was originally created to be, God can use you too. There's even a lot of people in church that like to judge and elevate certain sins over other sins and say, well, that person was caught in pornography. They don't have, to cha- they don't have a chance to do anything for the body of Christ. Or that person was caught in an affair. They can't do anything for the body of Christ. I believe different sins have different consequences. But I believe by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, God can see right where you are. And he can look at you and he can say, I knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're made in my image. I know your gifts and passions. I can send my Holy Spirit inside of you. And my Holy Spirit can transform you. And with my help, you can do amazing things for the kingdom. A lot of us think that if we're going to experience the Holy Spirit, we have to have this warm, tingly feeling. We have to have cold chills. I had a preacher one time that told me that if you want cold chills, go run in the snow in your pajamas. If you want to cry, go cut an onion. If you want a, you know, warm, tingly feeling, you know, go jump in a hot pot of boiling water. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not always going to get a warm, tingly feeling. You're not always going to get cold chills. There's a lot of churches that have made the Holy Spirit to be an emotion and a feeling instead of a lifestyle. Instead of a transforming lifestyle. Let's look at Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. It's not on the screen, but if you want to follow with me, you can. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's inside of you. That's how you know that you've had a repentant heart from godly sorrow. Where you're going in one direction. You're following God. You're trusting in God. You're following in His Word. And you never look back.
And we have to constantly allow the Holy Spirit to fill us up each and every day. The fridge is full, but you've got to open up the fridge and get a drink. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be filled with what's a great taste and less filling. Some of you guys got that. Be filled with what's a great taste and what's always filling. It's the Holy Spirit. Get some of that living water that Jesus was talking about with the woman at the well. That living water will never leave you thirsty. We're always pouring ourselves out to others and to other events and to other programs. And there's a point where you feel empty and you feel dry and you're going to fill yourself up with something. We just don't know what it is. I found out the other day that a caramel frappuccino from Starbucks, I don't remember what size it was, but one of the caramel frappuccinos has 14 teaspoons of sugar. I was ready to cry. I love caramel frappuccinos from Starbucks. But are we filling our body with what gives us a temporary refreshing experience that's toxic? Or are we filling up our bodies with living water that transforms us and changes us and cleanses us through being that personal GPS and that personal spotter and that personal security system and that personal water purifier each and every day? And we are constantly filled with the Holy Spirit because you're sanctified. You're in community and you're being a witness and you're being transformed each and every day. And you're always getting filled up by that living water. And don't think that God can't use you. Anybody can hear the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel. And the gospel can pierce the heart of anybody. Where they have godly sorrow that leads to repentance and they have a repentant heart. And they want to go in one direction. And they want to have a change of heart and a change of mind. And they want to be baptized. Because it's their heart's desire to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And they want to be obedient to God. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Let the gospel give you that open heart surgery. So you have a repentant heart. And if you do love Jesus and you follow Jesus, continue to go to that fridge, get a drink. It's not a great taste that's less filling. It's a great taste that's always filling. And you always want more. And you always want to get a drink all the time. Let the gospel change you. So you have a repentant heart. So you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you can tap into that fridge every day through being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If you feel God convicting your heart today to want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to want to give your life to God, to have an attitude of repentance where you're saying, God, I'm going in one direction. I'm not looking back. I want to have a change of heart and a change of mind. We can have some people to pray with you. Actually, I'll stay up here. I know I'm throwing the band a curveball, but I'll stay up here. 
The time is now to give your life to Jesus, to have that repentant heart. Because you don't know when your last day is. And if you're struggling to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because you're constantly pouring yourself out, but you're not filling yourself up with what's untoxic, come up, because we want to pray for you. Why don't you guys pray with me? We'll have the band come up, and then we'll, we'll get rolling. Father, I pray that you challenge us to be witnesses and to be in community and to be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would tug the right people to have a repentant heart where they're pierced in the heart by the gospel message because there's power in the gospel. Help us to realize the privilege that we have to have the living, moving, breathing God inside of us. Help us to show that the Holy Spirit changes us. Help us to have an answer for the hope that we have. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for sending your son. Amen.